Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, yo, solo warriors. Welcome to another Tactical Tuesday, conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast. If Thursdays are for thoughtful insight into the who of the industry, well, consider this the what and the how, the tools of the trade, if you will. Sometimes we bring you content from one of our many live broadcasts and trainings. Sometimes they are snippets or extras from our longer form executive interviews. What you're about to hear is one such broadcast. My buddy Tor Valenza and I put together a series over the last year called The Great Solar Debate. And this final one is a doozy. It took a long time to pull together. And I know you're going to love the all-star cast that we brought together for the final debate. Distributed versus centralized. How do we create the 100% clean grid of the future? I'll spare you the intros here as we go into it in the recording. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations in the show notes at mysuncast.com. While you're at it, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to our YouTube channel as many of these conversations with our phenomenal friends and guests are live streams as well. Just search for Suncast Media on YouTube. It's easy enough to find, but we link to it as well over on the website. All right, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Welcome, everyone, to the Great Solar Debate series. In this final debate of our exciting series for the year, we are so glad that you decided to join us. We're back with solar experts debating the hottest topics facing the solar industry. I'm your host, Nico Johnson of Suncast, and I'm really, really looking forward to what I expect to be a very lively discussion, and not just discussion, but you as the audience can get in on the action by sending us your questions and answers. We will try to get to them, but we expect this to be interactive as it has been in our three sessions prior. We've got four experts really digging in on the topic today. These discussions are so important as we grow and scale our industry. So I'd like to take a moment and thank Solar Power Events for helping host the event with you all. And my co-conspirator, Tor Solar Fred Valenza of Unthink Solar, Solar Marketing and Communications for supporting this series and helping it bring, helping bring everything all together for everybody today. Uh, let's first agree, as we always do, that we're going to need some collaboration, but there is some discourse both sides of the aisle on most of our discussions. We need some combination of distributed and large-scale renewable energy, that much is sure, but how much of each and how will it be integrated into the grid? That is the debate and the premise for our discussion today. And now for our next great solar debate, distributed versus centralized. How do we create a 100% clean grid of the future? 
Let me first welcome my co-host, Tor Solarfred Valenza, to the stage. Tor, how you doing? Hey, Nico. Great to be here again and great for this last debate of the season. It's, uh, I think, going to be one of our most exciting, for sure. I do as well. It's certainly a topic that is, uh, is front of mind for many of us. Well, let's introduce our debaters, shall we? We've got four extremely knowledgeable advocates today with us to advocate on either the centralized grid or a distributed grid, two, in fact, for each. We're going to bring to the stage Emily Wangerman. Emily leads LightSource BP's business development organization here in the Americas with responsibility for customer origination, mergers and acquisitions, wholesale power marketing, and corporate strategy. Hi, Emily. Good to see you. Hi, Nico. Hi, Tor. Hey, Emily. Thanks again for joining us. Representing the distributed side, uh, we have Barry Cinnamon, who is CEO of Cinnamon Energy Systems. Barry runs a Silicon Valley solar and energy storage contractor. I should he should I should say he is one. He's a licensed uh, California C46 solar and C10 electrical contractor. NAPSA Emeritus. I should have practiced that one. And he's in Solar and Solar and the weekly host of the Energy Show podcast, as well as a former CalSA president and CIA board member. Barry, I'm sorry I bungled that, but welcome. You can hold your own, I'm sure, in the debate. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Tor, and thanks, Nico, for including me. Looking forward to it. Glad you're here. Next, we have Barbara Lockwood, Senior Vice President of Public Policy for Arizona Public Service. You might know that as APS. It's Arizona's largest electrical company, serving 1.3 million homes and businesses across the state. Ms. Lockwood oversees the federal and state regulatory affairs and many, many other functions for the organization. Barbara, great to have you here today. Thank you, Nico. Thank you, Tor. Uh, excited to be here today. Looking forward to the great conversation. And then finally, on the distributed side, we have Meredith McClintock, who's the Director of Business Development at Aurora Solar, uh, provider of solar, the solar industry's leading solar design and sales software. Um, solar professionals have designed over 6 million projects in Aurora, and Aurora Design Systems are installed on six continents. And Meredith, I know, has been in the business for as long as Barry has um, for, for many years. So welcome, Meredith. Yes, <laughs> glad to be here. Good to have such a beautiful, fine, esteemed panel here today. Tor, we have our work cut out for us. We're going to get to work. I'll go over the rules, and then Tor's going to jump into question one of the debate. So here we go. We've gone over our ground rules with the, the debaters. Very simply, Tor and I will ask questions. Each team will have two and a half minutes to answer, and the other team will have another two and a half minutes to respond, also known as a rebuttal. If necessary, Another minute or two of rebuttal will be given for follow-up. We've all agreed not to talk over each other, as some other debates have been prone to do. But if there's another point that you'd like to raise, please do raise your hand, and we, time permitting, will give you that opportunity. All right, Tor, let's get started with question one. All right, folks, here we go. Um, so the current grid design is based on a centuries-old technology and frameworks for delivering power to consumers. In short, it's pretty old and not very smart. Um, in, for just background, I here in, in Oakland, I, I had a blackout. And you would think that in this great city that we would not have one uh, most recently, um, but and yet it does. So the first question is, is the current grid capable of integrating 100% renewable energy or not? What's working with the current grid and what's not working about the current grid? Let's start with our utility scale power 
opponent, uh, Barbara Lockwood. Thank you, Tor. And it's a great question. And um, I just have to, uh, as the utility person that I am, know that we have the best uh, power grid reliability uh, virtually in the world. And it's something that, that we do take for granted. But um, it, is a, it is a pretty darn reliable system, even if there is a occasional time where something happens and uh, the power goes out for, for a short period of time. But my answer to that question is unequivocally yes. Uh, the grid is capable of integrating 100% clean energy. We like to talk about clean energy, not 100% renewable, because um, there are other uh, options out there as well. But like any system, it needs upgrades over time. It is old. It's been around for quite some time. And we have to make investments. And the utilities are making investments all the time to improve uh, both the reliability, the resiliency, and the capabilities of the grid. And we have to make smart investments to do so. We have to make smart investments as this transition happens so that we're unlocking the potential of all these great new resources that are coming onto the system. But we also need some advanced technology that I would suggest is, is either not available today or not affordable today. Uh, when I think about the poles and wires piece of it, I think about automating, and that makes sense. Um, but when I think about the generation side, when we get to a certain point, we will need additional technologies like hydrogen for reliability or long-duration uh, energy storage. So that's my answer. Absolutely, yes. Uh, just uh, need some upgrades along the way. Great. Well, you're under the two and a half minute mark. So we go to Barry Cinnamon, who can take some of those uh, extra minutes or seconds from you, Barbara, maybe. Um, Barbara, I mean, Barry, what, what's your response? Is the grid ready? Yeah, no, I, I basically agree with Barbara that the grid is definitely capable of integrating 100% renewables. I'd like to change one of the premises that that um, old is not necessarily bad. That's what I tell my kids anyway. Um, rather than old, I would say inefficient and expensive. Um, and, and obviously smart is better than dumb. Um, there are plenty of grid architecture models that will do what we want to do. The, the challenge we have as far as getting to 100% renewables and with your blackout problems tour is really that the, the utility business model disincentivizes fixing things locally, fixing things behind the meter. Um, it's just not good. And, and that model is kind of dependent on the fact and, and premised on the fact that um, utilities get a guaranteed profit based on their assets, not based on how much electricity they sell. So, for example, at PG&E, your utility, they're doing a hideous job of reliability. They raised rates 11% this year already. They're bankrupt twice. They're criminally negligent twice. They admitted that they created two of the recent fires, Dixie and Zog, and now they want to bury 10,000 miles of transmission lines, which on the surface sounds great, but at their price of $4 million a mile, that's $40 billion. And on top of that, they'll get a 12% rate of return on that $40 billion. So it's an extra $4.8 billion of profit every year for 50 years. So what's an alternative? An alternative is we can take that $40 billion and assuming that there's seven and a half million homes in California, maybe two and a half million in PG&E territory, with the ITC, we can put a $23,000 solar and storage system on the roof of every single family home for the price that PG&E wants to invest to bury transmission lines. It's just as a comparison. I'm not saying we don't need to bury some lines, but I am saying that there's better alternatives that are going to give you tour the reliability that you want and all of our other 
businesses want. Okay, got a little time left over, but thank you, Barry. Emily, over to you for response to Barry. And, you know, I appreciate um, Barry's comments of uh, rewording it in inefficient and expensive. Um, you know, I do agree with the inefficiency. I think there are opportunities for improvements and efficiency. Um, I'm not sure I completely agree on the expensive component. Um, you know, I do see value in continued investment in uh, the transmission system as well as in the distribution system. Um, interestingly, I did actually used to work at PG&E, so I have a little bit of background on, on what's happening in PG&E, but I won't speak on behalf of them. I will stay out of that. Um, but I will say that um, as a developer, it is really important that um, from the federal and at the state level and even at the utility level that there is significant investment at the transmission level um, because, you know, at the end of the day, um, if we're going to grow renewables, we need to account for modernizing the grid. And so I think that's really important. Um, additionally, I will stay away from the reference of whether or not it's better to do behind the meter investment um, versus on transmission lines. But what I will say is the current behind the meter technology doesn't work at all times of day. So I think everybody's still using the grid. And I think we need to account for the value of um, using, you know, still using that grid and modernizing it and being able to adopt new technologies that then benefit and grow the value uh, throughout the 24-7. From an overall development perspective, I, um, from a utility scale solar development perspective, I think there needs to be a lot more work done at the federal level of are we going to continue to grow to meet the commitments that Biden has said, which includes further reform. FERC order, for instance, FERC order 845 was a great example, and um, we just need more of that. Okay, over to you, Meredith, the response to Emily and Barbara. Thanks for uh, for everybody for being here. I think it's great. And I think a lot of us do have shared um, beliefs in terms of things that we need to do. I also agree that investment in uh, transmission resources makes sense. I think the important things to differentiate, though, are what makes uh, a smart grid and, and capable um, transmission in terms of integrating all these resources versus just simply building more capacity and more capacity in terms of uh, distributing centralized uh, generated energy to um, individual homeowners. I think also um, something that I believe we all share um, as a, uh, an assumption is that storage is critical, whether it's at utility scale or whether it's localized, um, you know, all the way down to the, uh, the individual home or individual business. And I think that's going to be critical for us, uh, you know, to achieve a, uh, a resilient grid, um, an effective grid, and also something that is, uh, you know, future-proofed, as, as one of our questions um, asks. Well, let's like jump into question two. Tor, thank you for being the official timekeeper. Thanks for those, uh, those comprehensive answers for question one. As we look at the uh, current grid, let's all agree the current grid has challenges. It's why many of us are doing the job that we are to bring power to the lives that we want to enjoy. But what about the future? I'd love to hear from you all your vision for the 21st century future-proof grid with 100% renewable energy. We're going to flip-flop this time. We're going to start with Meredith, uh, and then we'll move along uh, in reverse order. What's a modern distributed grid look like, Meredith? Um, well, first, I want to say in terms of future proof, we can never be totally future proof. So I'm going to leave out the alien scenario in this one. But first, I want to go through criteria. I think we want to know we want a grid that is resilient from both 
adverse events, wildfires, et cetera. Uh, we also want it to be adaptable and scalable, both in terms of technology and economic models. As we know, things are going to evolve in ways that we can't expect, and we need to not be stuck in um, legacy models or technologies that will make it difficult for us to adapt. Um, and then we also need some redundancy in terms of uh, being able to manage these um, you know, different uh, adverse events and so forth um, to make sure that people aren't stranded without energy when they need it. The second criteria would be, I assume it's it's got to be climate positive, no greenhouse gases, because otherwise, um, you know, and perhaps that's what we should substitute for renewables. It really should be, you know, climate positive. Um, and I think we also need to incentivize um, people to maximize the behavior that is good. So leveraging what the industry and individuals are doing anyway, um, increasing uh, residential and commercial uh, DERS and microgrids. Um, a number of uh, studies, one study has uh, indicated that we could save $500 billion in electric bills um, by 2050 and create 2 million jobs. Um, and this would be more cost effective actually than adopting a centralized approach. So looking at those total economic effects makes a ton of sense. And I think also, you know, looking at things like virtual power plants, more smart grid management tools, um, and um, other capabilities, I mentioned storage before, to make a distributed grid um, an effective reality. And I think that's all things that, you know, people would want um, to see um, available energy for all, um, and to look at the positive benefits that we could see on a regional basis. The uh, Borrego Springs uh, microgrid is a great example of looking for win-win uh, situations for both utilities and um, distributed energy. Sliding in under the 30-second mark there. Great job. Uh, Emily, we're going to come over to you now. What does your version of the 21st century modern grid look like? Uh, great question. So I, what I really like to hear from Meredith was around the resiliency. I completely agree around the resiliency. I think it's really important that we address climate change and see how much things have changed given, you know, the conversations of having, uh, you know, mass fires and, you know, really strong storms. And so we need better resiliency of, of the current grid. And I also think as it relates to resiliency, there's also about how resilient is the product, uh, sorry, is our overall system in addressing change. So even things like market dynamics. So um, as we've introduced uh, products like storage or behind the meter resources or in front of the meter resources, um, the products in the markets, the products in the RTOs have had to adapt and they have to be resilient to that change. And so looking for more products that benefit storage, uh, for instance, in PJM and in MISO so that we grow the overall um, improvement in the technologies and the value that those can bring uh, to the to the sellers. And then also looking at dispatchability and awareness of where resources are. If you introduce more of a smart grid uh, situation where you're aware and you can dispatch resources, then you can better manage the grid and be aware of where the load is, be aware of where the generation is. So I think overall, it's at the end of the day, that's all resilience, but it's also introducing more of the, the um, market-based solutions there. And I think the last thing that we really want to consider is 
how are we preparing in a timely manner? So if we really want to introduce 100% clean energy, then we have to be able to address one of the fundamental problems, which is really on the interconnection side. We have huge problems in bogged down interconnection um, queues. And the opportunity is to, for, as I mentioned in, in the first question, for quarter 845 really started to improve some of that, introducing things like provisional GIAs. But the reality is we still have a long way to go. And um, with that improvement, we really need to work on how can we get the resources out there that are reliable, that are dispatchable, that are uh, the newest technologies that can help increase the clean energy of the grid and address climate change through further, further market reform. Emily, thank you for that. Barry, we got a couple of uh, minutes left. We'll give one minute to you and one minute to Barbara each for rebuttals. Start with you first. Okay, sure. Well, I, I agree we need transmission investments. And I also agree that um, we definitely need better interconnections um, on, behind the meter. It's a nightmare. But I'm not hearing any that, that we need any investments for behind the meter generation or behind the meter storage. Um, it's a fundamental equity issue as far as you know, making it easier for people to contribute to the solution. So you know, fundamentally, when you look at what the end result would be, it's, it's solar on every sunny roof. It's batteries sufficient for nighttime use in every building. It's intelligent inverters, um, high-speed communications. And we're going to need all of this for electrification of existing buildings. I mean, I, I live in a house that's fully electric, and it's pretty much independent. Um, but we do. But realistically, as, as, as um, Emily and Barbara have said, we will need some more long-distance transmission lines. Um, we're going to need lo uh, long-duration energy storage. Hydrogen is a good option, but we're... 20 years away from cost-effectively making green hydrogen, although we're getting started. And in the meantime, unfortunately, we're going to need some emergency fossil fuel generation. Yeah, um, there's not much uh, to quibble with in, in any of the speaker's comments so far. I, I think I agree with everything that's been said. We need to clean up the interconnection queues. We need to continue to make it easier to interconnect behind the meter. We do need more investment in behind the meter generation and storage to pay very close attention to resiliency, preserve the reliability that we have as we make the transition. Uh, we need an automated, adaptable cybersecurity system. And that's the, uh, that's the goal and objective. Um, so I think we're, we're all generally aligned. Alrighty then. I think we've gone through all the, the responses and we're on to the next question. Let's talk about urgency. I'm sure you've all seen the UN's uh, recent uh, international panel on climate change report of 2021. It is dire. And um, if you're on social media, you're seeing Greta Thunberg uh, shaming all of us adults. Um, so we're, we're in this crisis situation and, you know, we have solutions here. So what policies and resources are needed right now to make your ideal grid a reality by next Tuesday or Wednesday, the latest. So um, this time, let's start with Barbara. I want to start with um, sharing that in 2020, APS announced its clean energy commitment. So we announced to 100% carbon-free by the year 2050 with some interim uh, goals as well, of 45% renewable by the year 2030, which equates to 65% clean in our process. Uh, we're already 50% clean today, and we do operate the largest clean energy source in the United States, the Palo Verde Generating Station. So we feel like we're, we're on our way, we like our plan, and we definitely believe 
that we will um, likely exceed it and uh, run faster than the targets that we've established. Uh, I think that's generally true uh, when you have these major goals and, and objectives. The key aspect of moving fast is keeping it affordable and reliable and uh, fundamentally believe that we have to watch the price tag and make sure that we are doing everything as uh, cost effectively as possible. Because if we have a stumble with either the cost effectiveness or reliability, then I think our customers are going to revolt and set us back. So the policies that we need are ways to incentivize going faster, market solutions, as was mentioned earlier, market solutions versus mandates. And that's a lot of what's being discussed in Washington right now as the administration is trying to move forward with their climate policies. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. So Meredith, what about you? What's your vision? Can you speed up it even more than Barbara's vision? Sure. Um, I think to achieve our goals as fast as possible, one of the best things to do is to take advantage of what's happening already. You know, and a couple of key axioms in that regard is um, if you want to get things done, a goal achieved faster, do multiple things in parallel. Um, And also, if you want to uh, incentivize that behavior, measure what you want and then um, incentivize that behavior um, appropriately to give people the economic reasoning uh, to do the right thing. We already see distributed energy resources happening already. It's in customers' best interests. Um, we can incentivize that further. We've talked about uh, potential uh, additional uh, tax credits at the federal level. There are also things that we could do at the state and local level. And building central infrastructure, um, assuming that those distributed resources are going to be built as well and incentivizing that so that the two uh, types of generation can work together and not in conflict. I think an important aspect of this is making sure that um, we have the modeling tools at the um, regulatory level, the utility regulatory level, um, uh, to make sure that we're accurately characterizing costs versus benefits. Because again, studies have shown that uh, solar at the retail level um, behind the meter is actually more cost effective than building out centralized resources. Um, And as a result, when you look at you know, calculating which which is more expensive, you obviously have to have the most, um, you know, uh, you have to have the correct modeling tool. And related to that, we want to minimize uh, consideration of things like stranded assets in uh, the, you know, the for-profit business world um, outside of utilities. That's called sunk cost, and we move on from that as quickly as possible. So um, we want to, you know, basically eliminate that as a, as a uh, concern um, in terms of doing the right thing. 
because um, it does slow us down and we're worried about what to do with those assets. Um, and as Barry mentioned earlier, I think we need a different business model uh, for utilities. It's not to say that anything that utilities are doing are, is bad. It simply says we want to make sure that we're incentivizing the best motivation and incentives uh, across all actors. So, Emily, what's your response to that? So I think I might break from a debate tradition and have uh, potentially oppose a little bit of what Barbara said about the run faster. I, I mean, I guess I agree utilities definitely need to run faster, but I think, it, you know, as it comes to it, down to it, corporates seem to be running even faster than utilities at this point. So I think embracing corporate engagement and uh, corporate's engagement in procurement will help us grow and increase the number of renewables on the grid. And so it doesn't mean that utilities don't have a role, but I'd like to see more and more corporate engagement in direct procurement. I think it will help them have control over their renewable needs and also increase the pace at which we can move. And then I think something that Meredith said that was really interesting around um, whether or not it's cost more cost effective to introduce centralized versus decentralized. I'm not sure if I fully agree on her point, but I hear what she's saying that, you know, at the end of the day, behind the meter has a lot of value to some customers. I do think there's a lot of customers that aren't interested or can not have rooftop solar or rooftop technology. So I think it's also important for customers to have the options to further benefit from an overall clean grid. And so as the as the grid it remains with some centralized and then lots of behind the meter, there's tons of value of behind the meter as it comes to resilience to weather and to you know having personal control over theirs. But there's a lot of customers that also still ben- benefit from things like community solar or the centralized grid being cleaner and in, in general. Barry, what about you? How do you respond to all that? Well, I basically agree. A couple little things that Emily said that, that I, I'd like to push back on, but you know that's just a, the old uh, the old debates. But um, just kind of looking forward with some other ideas as far as moving faster. I, um, in order to move faster, you try and figure out why are we moving so slowly. And one of the reasons why we're moving so slowly is the policies move it at a glacial pace. Um, although glaciers are moving a little faster than they used to. But um, the, looking at why, and, and this is kind of interesting, I, I just kind of came up when I was thinking about our debate. There's a tremendous amount of lobbying that goes on by public utilities and by private companies. And you know, I know private companies got to dig up the money to do that, but the public utilities are able to basically get a lot of that money from ratepayers. So one idea I have is um, if we can do a ballot initiative to prevent investor-owned utilities from lobbying the government. These investor-owned utilities are public agencies in some way, and public, you know, public agencies aren't allowed to lobby. So we're allowing them to lobby, and that slows everything down. And obviously, we want to do things that are going to improve CCAs and community solar projects because those are getting slowed down, and everything that is going on or may not be going on in Washington for incentives. Thank you, debaters. The conversation is, uh, at times... Uh, in consensus and at times contentious. I'd like to see if we have, uh, if we continue this trend of consensus, I think we're going to get into what I perceive to be a rather important part of our industry and our society at large. Let's talk about jobs and businesses. How can we maximize through the building of centralized or distributed resources, the, the jobs and economic benefits as we continue down the path of this energy transition? What's the balance between distributed versus central or utility scale jobs? And how do we take care of the communities that Barry was just referencing? Barry, we'll start off with you. I know you're directly affected by this question. 
Yeah, sure. Well, you know, jobs. Um, th- there's a tremendous amount of jobs as we expand both utility scale and behind the meter solar and storage. It's the fastest growth uh, job growth category in the U.S. So we want to expand both. Um, the problem is, once again, we kind of have this disincentive among the utilities of of impeding behind the mirror behind the meter business models. It's not only for residential and commercial, but it's for community solar. So, for example, this year, um, the uh, investor-owned utilities in California actively supported legislation and promoted it. This legislation that would kill net metering. They're using the IBEW as a stalking horse to prevent solar installers from installing batteries and solar. And they're lobbying the PUC very heavily to kill net metering. And, and that's, um, that, that's not getting us to where we're going to generate more jobs. And so we look at the end of the day as far as how the publicly owned utilities are managing things. Let's just do a quick comparison um, of electric rates. And once again, I'm, I'm looking at PG&E. But if you compare PG&E's average electric rates, it's about 30 cents a kilowatt hour. But there's a few towns in my area where I do solar and storage installations like Palo Alto, which have their own utility and their electric rates in Palo Alto, one of the most expensive cities in the country, um, are 13 cents a kilowatt hour. And they both pay the same amount of money for generation at three cents per kilowatt hour. So, um, you know, really, at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty clear that. That investor-owned utility model is at least twice as expensive as public utilities. And if there's ways we can go more towards a less expensive model, I think we're going to create a lot more jobs, especially as we fix some of the policy decision-making processes that happen in the state and the country. Barry, thank you. I'm going to kick it over to our utility representative, Barbara uh, Barry, talking a bit about the nature of the way the utilities are incentivized and, and how that might affect jobs. What, pers- what perspective do you have on the job creation for the, uh, the transition? I believe the transition is a great opportunity for new jobs in both behind the meter and utility scale developments, that's for sure. And Barry said a lot of things that I don't agree with, but I'm not going to unpack them all. Um, I'll just share with respect to the perspective that behind the meter solar is more cost effective than utility scale. At APS, we currently pay for excess behind the meter solar that's returned to the grid more than twice what we pay for utility scale solar. So those are real hard dollars to get passed on to our customers. So I'll set that aside for a minute. And I wanted to talk for a second about the significance of the transition in the communities. These communities that are experiencing a transition in, in particular coal communities is what I'm referring to are truly impacted. And we have to be thinking about those communities as we make this transition as well. We can't leave them behind. At APS, we proposed a complete coal community transition program, which would provide significant economic support, a commitment to redeploy employees, and a commitment to seek new renewable projects in those communities. And we think those are very important for these communities that are in transition. So once again, it's just a great opportunity jobs, both distributed and utility scale systems. Barbara, thank you for that perspective. I'd love to, uh, uh, time permitting, have you come back and uh, put your gloves on again on some of the things that Barry said. But we're going to first move over to, to Meredith. Uh, Aurora's clients are mostly uh, behind the meter, distributed scale solar businesses. What do you, how do you see the job market for the energy transition with that respect? Well, a couple of things. I think um, to uh, Barbara's point about the cost of paying for excess energy um, sent back to the grid from behind the meter sources, I think a key um, 
solution for this, and we've all talked about in previous questions, is storage, of course. Both um, those behind the meter sources, um, you know, having their own storage, because we don't know at this point is, are those uh, sources, do they are they solar only? we had storage, we could be make more efficient use of that energy at the like local generation site, as well as at the utilities scale site. Um, I think it's super important that we incorporate storage everywhere where it makes sense. And, you know, by doing that, costs of storage come down, economies of scale, and I think the results are only positive. A question about the uh, question I would ask Barbara about the coal community program is, did it involve uh, behind the meter resources at all? And I would also say that the concept of training communities to move toward renewable energy is fantastic. I um, couldn't support that more as we, our customers, um, you know, are all our solar installers for the most part. They can benefit from that increased labor supply because as we know, um, that's uh, finding skilled folks um, in the solar industry is, is pretty difficult today. So totally agree on that one. Thank you, Meredith. Emily, we're going to ha- give you perhaps the final word on this question. How can a more centralized grid be economically fair? to all stakeholders? I think it's a great question. It's something that LightSource in particular really cares a lot about. Um, For instance, we have what's called responsible solar. And that means that every project that we work on considers moving beyond just the the energy and really getting into the community and how are we impacting that community. And so something that I think is really important is looking at how are we we, uh, giving back as it relates to the environmental impact? For instance, we are partners with the American Solar Grazing Association and every project we look at, can we have co-located agriculture? Can we support farmers as we engage with um, the actual land? We also look at things like uh, we're engaged with grid alternatives and actually providing jobs. Um, For instance, um, in Colorado for a project in Pueblo, Colorado that's supporting Everest Steel, we're actually looking at hiring local um, team members there. And then um, we're also engaging with a company called uh, an organization called Root and Rebound, which is a nonprofit that's committed to addressing, um, you know, giving back to people that are impacted by mass incarceration. So I think overall, you need to consider how are you engaging with the community going beyond just the energy. And then I think the last thing to just note is that there are a lot of jobs in, in, in utility scale solar production. For instance, we have about one gigawatt under construction or in, in operation at this point, and we have about two. 2,000 jobs, hard, you know, well-paid construction jobs supporting those projects. And so it's a great example of, um, you know, being able to give back to the community with, with jobs as well. I'm certain uh, that there is a plenty of rebuttal. I see Barry's hand up. We are a little bit ahead of time. I'd love to, Tori, do you think, uh, I'd love yeah. to hear, frankly, a response from Barry and or Meredith. Barry, why don't you go first? Well, no, I, I just have a question back to Barbara, and, and I think it's it's really a good idea to find jobs for people in coal communities. The, the program that, that you were discussing for those coal communities, what's the balance between behind the meter investments that are made in electricity generation storage and, and utility scale solar? Yeah, Barry, I'm happy to address that. Um, I would say the, the majority of the economic value comes from, uh, frankly, cash to those communities for them to determine their own future and decide their own fate. Uh, What was important to them was some specific utility scale commitments. That's what they were looking for. There's also, I believe there's an energy efficiency component. It was a complex arrangement that we negotiated directly with the Navajo Nation, uh, specifically at their request and with their interests. Another really important part for them 
was electrification because they have a significant amount of the nation that doesn't have electricity at all. So for this is our final question. Um, and we're kind of turn the tables around and, and go with the sort of say something nice about the other side um, <laughs> question here. So how can centralized um, renewable, uh, how can a centralized, more centralized renewable grid incorporate decentralized sources? And that would be to the utility side of things. And for Barry and Meredith, let's say the distributed energy grid is chosen by our policymakers. How will utilities be supporting that vision? So we'll go with uh, Barry and Mer Meredith first. I think. No, sorry. This is this one is for Barbara um, or Emily. I don't. I, I think I mixed it up. Do, do you guys remember which one? I'm sorry. I, I think you're taking me first. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no problem. You know, so I, I think overall, with the way to frame it, that I would say of what can we learn from a decentralized, um, you know, system, and, and how can a centralized system benefit from it? I'd say a couple things of even on the, in the industry, you know, you have a lot of people that have a ton of experience. Just speaking, you know, with Barry and Meredith here is great examples of people that really understand the technology, really understand the policy. And so, you know, I think in while the technology is very well known, I'm not sure how much customers fully understand the centralized model, but they have a much better sense of what does it mean if I put solar on my roof? And so, you know, some of that is just really learning from how do you communicate to the end user the value that, they're that they get from, you know, increasing clean energy on the grid. And so I think some of that communication and that format can be really that the centralized system can really benefit from. And then if you actually Actually, ask the question of if we went fully centralized, how would we benefit from distributed energy resources? I think they're truly valuable, especially when you address things like resiliency. And if you address, um, you know, reducing um, distribution costs and, and deferring costs, I think there's really opportunities for that. If there's a time and a place for them, that doesn't mean there wouldn't be centralized resources, but it really gives you the opportunity to, as long as it's dispatchable and it's reliable and the customer is willing to have it be dispatchable, then I think it really comes down to be making a much better system that integrates the value of that resiliency as well as the scale and the efficiency of the centralized system. I've checked back and this one goes to Meredith first. So Meredith Say something nice about the utility folks and how they're going to be incorporated. Um, well, I think as, as we've all, I think, agreed in various other questions that um, there are benefits to both and a uh, reliable um, future-proofed uh, grid involves both types of energy generation. I think, you know, there are roles for distributed energy generation where people have, um, you know, the resources locally versus those who perhaps don't have renewable resources um, that they can access. I think also it's important, I mentioned modeling before, it's, it's important for at the regulatory and the public policy level to be looking at models that accurately portray the benefits that each type of generation bring to our overall grid and to be accounting for those accurately. Because I, um, I think a lot of our policy debates um, involve 
uh, you know, which side gets to maximize, uh, you know, their piece of the puzzle. And it really shouldn't be focused on that. It should be focused on what maximizes our overall goal. And so I can see plenty of, of scenarios where microgrids and uh, retail-based uh, um, distributed resources all can add a ton to the grid. Um, and centralized resources can uh, plug in where those are needed. Um, I think it's, as I mentioned, it's just a question of relative cost, but making sure um, that those those uh, costs are modeled accurately. I also think it's a question of equity um, in terms of people being able to take advantage of the resources that they have and also to make sure that costs uh, from um, outmoded resources are not passed on to homeowners. So, and that would be all of us ratepayers. So I think that there's a combination of, uh, of technologies to be used in different situations, um, uh, depending on what makes the most sense for the resources at hand. Um, so that's how I think um, even with distributed uh, resources, there still is a place for whether it's centralized um, in terms of large private developments or in terms of utilities. I think we can all work together. And, uh, you know, the main goal is to incentivize as much renewable energy as possible um, and, you know, get to uh, net zero carbon as quickly as, as, as we possibly can. Okay, great. Um, over to you, Barbara. How would you see the distributed world um, being involved with uh, the utility, a centralized, a more centralized grid? It's a great question, and and I think uh, there's much has already been said that I would certainly agree with. When I think about uh, distributed generation, I think about the, the great need to unlock the potential, and that's how I think about it. We need to put more on the system, but we also need to enable it to provide um, additional benefits to everyone uh, along the way. And that requires um, some upgraded technologies on the grid. It requires some uh, sophisticated uh, platforms and management systems. But I do believe that distributed generation is going to have a starring role from a resiliency perspective as we progress and we continue to deal with the impacts of climate. And I think about it from, uh, we've got uh, a couple of microgrids on our system that are used for critical, um, critical services. And they are uh, brilliantly designed in that they can provide power to everyone uh, in normal circumstances. But when there is potentially a power quality issue or something along those lines, then they can um, isolate and provide services to that critical facility. So very important in that respect as well. All right. And Mr. Cinnamon, for now, you will have the, the last nice thing to say. Of course, my, I'm happy to, but I'm sure there'll be more. But um, no, I... I being, it's not hard being nice because I agree with Barbara and I agree with Emily. Um, we, we really do need more resiliency and that resiliency is coming at, behind behind the meter. Over half of our customers are putting in batteries right now. Um, they're, they're really happy. Um, one of the um, kind of looking at what more we can do as far as um, centralized utility resources comes back to the interconnection question. And I know Emily talked about reducing um utility interconnection costs, um, we have tremendous problems um, improving customer interconnection costs. What, what I'd like to see is the utilities handling uh, customer load increases, service upgrades, the same way they handle um, solar generation. So I'll give you an example. Um, it, it takes 12 months and over $15,000 to upgrade a home if it's an underground electrical service. And these people want this fast. It takes four months and $8,000 
for simple above ground. So it, until we find a way to accelerate that, it's going to be really hard to electrify homes and obviously also um, put in that behind the meter solar and storage. Thanks, Barry. So we are a little ahead of time and we do have audience questions. So we we might have some surprises here, but I, I think they're they're good good questions. So one one is reliability seems to cover too many things, such as paving over innovation. Does this mean we should stop expecting responsibility from our utilities or that we need to take the profit motive away from utilities until they get more responsible? So that seems to be more of a Barbara question. So how would you respond to that? So certainly I won't speak to pg and That's a very complicated subject. I'm not California-based, um, and I don't pretend to understand the um, all of the circumstances there. But, you know, it is the utility's responsibility to maintain reliability. We take that very seriously, not suggesting that um, that changes in any way, shape, or form. And it is our job to integrate new technologies. I guess that's where I'm stuck on, you know, I agree with the premises utilities responsibility to ensure reliability. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we're integrating things in a, in a reliable way that we're working together um, collectively with uh, uh, DGDER providers to ensure that reliability. And that's never, that's never going to change. It's just never going to change. That's our, our responsibility and our commitment to our customers. Barry, what, what did you, well, how do you want to respond? I just think that punishing the utilities isn't really working. Um, we punished pg e already with two bankruptcies, criminally negligent twice, two more fires that they're uh, complicit in, um, and they keep popping up and we keep having the same problem. So I think we've got to look at it from a different perspective. Emily? Yeah, I agree in general. I'm not sure punishing people is going to solve the problem. I think coming up with a creative way to solve problems together as a community and address climate change as a community collectively is where we need to head. You know, I really think there's opportunities for us to reconsider what is reliability. You know, I think it, it's a funny a conversation. And, and, you know, Barbara started off with we're one of the most reliable systems in the world, and that being the U.S. And I think the question is, hey, if we want to move to 24-7 clean energy and really, truly address climate change, are we willing to make sure that everybody has a system on their roof? Are we willing to make sure there's enough central resources that are renewables? And are we willing to sacrifice any of that reliability to get some of those benefits? You know, the reality, I would much rather have not an incremental increase in the degree <laughs> of climate change and, and sacrifice a couple hours a week if I needed to. And so I think those are the kind of things that as a community, we need to decide, you know, we shouldn't have to sacrifice reliability, but maybe in the near term, as technology increases, maybe maybe some of us should consider that might be something we, we may want. And obviously, that's an exception for areas where they there's, there's urgent, you know, risks and, you know, hospitals and things like that. But, you know, for me, I might be willing to take a risk if it means that I can, um, you know, help with climate change. Well, we've got a few more questions uh, that I want to parlay in here because I think they dovetail quite nicely. We've got a number of questions that hopefully we'll get to from the audience. Uh, Glenna Wiseman asked, how do we ensure, and I think this is similar to not punishing, because let's think about the consumer. How do we ensure that consumers who've invested in their DERs, these residential systems, EV, uh, electric vehicles, energy storage, how do we ensure they're compensated for their contribution? to the grid. I, I think at this point we could just 
let you all respond if you have an answer. Feel free to jump in. I'll just go and say that is the great debate, right? Um, with yeah. respect to what counts and what doesn't count, um, how much uh, uh, investment should there be from all customers for single customers installation? That is the great debate, and you know I have my own personal opinions on it, and clearly um, others on the call have theirs as well. It's making sure every voice is heard in the process, that there is a fair process that is unbiased and looking at all the facts and making the determinations at the end of the day. And that is a fundamental tenet of um, regulation that I think is, is still functioning. The other, quite other side of that question, though, is from a society perspective, what are the things that we want to incent? What is the policy? And that's where state and federal get into very intensive debates about what it is that um, uh, each constituent values or doesn't value at the end of the day. And I would um, uh, say as well, I think some of that um, uh, in terms of the individual, um, you know, one is we're considering uh, in this debate, how do we get to 100% renewable energy as quickly as possible? And I think to the, in that sense, if people are willing to invest in distributed energy resources that do contribute toward that goal, um, they should be incentivized to do that. Um, also, if they can send energy back to the grid, if we're building the smart grid tools that we're talking about, we should be able to handle that. And I think an important thing looking at some of the things going on in California is it's important not to, you know, retroactively undermine someone's investment, particularly when they're doing something from a societal standpoint that we think is the right thing by removing ways for those um, individuals to earn their return on investment. If I've invested in solar or storage and suddenly, you know, net metering goes away, that really changes my economic picture and, you know, is damaging. So uh, once again, if we're trying to incentivize the uh, transition to renewables, we need to make sure that those um, incentives aren't upended in the middle of the process. And I think one thing that's really interesting that out of both those topics is around how do we um, work with end users to understand how are they using energy and how can they be more efficient with it? You know, I think the more that we have transparency in the value of the different products associated with uh, the renewable energy, as well as in their ability to control it, I think the better off we are. And so, for instance, LightSource BP, we have um, a, a program where we in the UK where they're able to actually really take their behind the meter resources and, and the actual technology to do more of the home area, um, home energy uh, management. And I think some of that is really important because then customers understand that how can they control their destiny. And I think from a utility scale perspective, the more that our products can incentivize us to provide the energy when it's the right time to provide it, the better off we will all be in being able to maintain more energy, clean energy use. I love Barbara for what it's worth that you said that is the great debate. Uh, it's it's so difficult, in fact, to get folks to vocalize what is the great debate. Uh, you know, a couple of things that I noted in this uh, in this debate. What does fair compensation look like? Uh, reliance or resilience and dispatchability are important. Front versus behind the meter are core to how we think about distributed versus central assets. Uh, where do the investments? need to go? Uh, are we lobbying enough, as, as Barry said, and would ballot initiatives help improve fair civic input? Where will the sustainable jobs actually appear for us and how will they benefit the communities where you and I live? I'd like to ask you not to go away. We've got a little bit more to, uh, to offer 
uh, I've certainly learned a lot and encouraged. I don't know about you, Tor, uh, the relative consensus here uh, and tremendous brain power focused on the critical issues for us is, is encouraging for me. Tor, can you bring it on home? Nico, thanks so much. Um, I also learned so much here and I, I'm heartened by that we're all on the same page that we all need to make this transition you know, happen and and happen sooner than later. And hopefully as we keep going here in the next decade, um, we'll see how the grid starts shaping up with uh, one of these or both of these visions. So we'd like to thank all the debaters um, for this this amazing, their amazing insights. Um, thanks to Barbara and, and Barry and Emily and Meredith. Um, the debate isn't over yet because you in the audience can now vote. Um, a few minutes after we end this, I'm going to put up on my Twitter uh, handle at SolarFred, um, and you'll be able to vote for who won the great solar debate, distributed versus centralized. Um, or you can also see the recap and vote on uh, my Suncast slash debate. Tor, how long are we going to have the, the, the Twitter poll up? Twitter only allows us to keep it up there for a week, um, but you can one, one full one week. week. You can vote one week. So we'll ask we'll ask uh, the Solar Power Events folks to prime those who come to watch uh, in post. If you're watching this as a replay, please go and vote. If it's still within a week of uh, this Wednesday, what is it? The 28th. Uh, I'm losing track of days now. But remember, you can watch this and previous debates and inquire about participation uh, in future debates at mysuncast.com forward slash debate. Tor and I will be back next year with this great debate series. What should we debate about next? What should we think about? Who's involved? If you'd like to be involved, please tweet at Solar Fred or at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O, to let us know the topics and debaters that you think should be included. I'd like to thank you for tuning in, for watching this, whether you're watching live or as a recording. On behalf of Suncast, Unthink Solar, we'd like to thank Solar Energy Trade Shows, Solar Power Events for collaborating on this year's great debate series. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and I'm so grateful that you showed up for this one. Remember, if you want to vote on who won the great debate, Tor is going to re-up his Twitter poll today, Tuesday, October 26th. And it's your turn. Go find the Twitter poll either directly on Twitter by searching Solar Fred or go to mysuncast.com forward slash debate. We'll have the Twitter poll integrated there as well. If you want to enjoy even more like this, there are more than 400 episodes, resources, highlights from the discussions, along with social media links to each guest, book recommendations, and so much more over in the show notes on our website. And as I mentioned in the intro, you can find many of these as live broadcast replays on our YouTube channel. Just search for Suncast Media. If you've been wondering how you can partner with Suncast as a sponsor, get coaching from me personally to help scale your clean energy business, transition into the solar industry, or just commune with other like-minded souls, well, you can find all you need at mysuncast.com. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle.